We're looking at relationships this semester. My name is Brian Sorgan Fry. Um, if I haven't met you, um, campus minister here, and love uh, love getting to do RUF. Uh, and we are looking every week at the premise that we are made in the image of God, and that God is a Trinity: God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. And because we're made in His image, relationships are central to who we are. Because God is in a relationship with Himself and uh, with those. Uh, that know him. And there's perhaps no other attribute, right, no other action that's more emphasized in Scripture about God than the fact that God is love. And so what I want to look at tonight is what does love really mean? Why does it thrill your heart, right, when somebody says, I love you? What's going on there? Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you that you're a God of love, and um, we ask that you would show up tonight uh, that you would uh, send your spirit uh, to come through your word. And so would you come in power tonight and break hard hearts and open blind eyes? Lord, would you also come in uh, tender mercy and draw us to yourself? Lord, draw us out of our sin. Draw us to see that you are uh, a, ba- a better Savior than we ever thought. Uh, that you really do remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. Uh, and would you enable us to love each other well? In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 13. We're actually only going to go through verse 8, but I have the whole chapter on there. Verse 1. If I speak in the, in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God, it stands forever. Okay, what I want to look at uh, with you tonight, hopefully, is the uh, importance of love, the meaning of love, that's where we'll spend the most time, and then the key to love. And then I really do at the end, uh, I just want to walk through that if, if the meaning of love is what we say it is, what that means in some, I hope, practical applications in your life, like how to break up with each other, uh, how loving someone means it dictates the way you ask somebody out. So um, that'll snap you back with me when we get to the end. So, All right, the importance of love, verse 1 through 3. All right, this, pa- this is actually one of the more famous passages in the Bible, even in places where the Bible isn't really well known because it just is so poetic. People think it's beautiful. It's, it's used at weddings. Um, but what's kind of ironic about that is Paul, if you really read 1 Corinthians, he didn't write these verses to bring a comforting feeling. These verses are actually a rebuke. They're a rebuke to the Corinthian church, and he's calling for massive change. Because what they are doing is they are celebrating their busyness, and they're celebrating how gifted they are in the Christian life and, and how well they're doing. And Paul is going to say, yeah. But the number one thing that demonstrates that you've had a heart changed by Jesus, that you really know the grace of God is by love. And he says you don't have it. And so let's look at what's being said. Look look how important he says. He says, right, you can have incredible gifts that inspire. You can be busy in service, 
have tongues of men, angels. Uh, we won't go into all that, but at least he's saying you can be an incredible teacher of the Bible. Right? He says you can understand mysteries and knowledge. You can have a great grasp of theology. You can have faith to move mountains. Right? You can have faith that inspires other people that they look at you and say, wow, I want to follow that guy. And then he says, if you have all those things, a great understanding of the Bible, you, you're a great teacher, people follow you, but you have not love, you have nothing. And you might not even have a heart that's been changed by God. So what he is saying is this. This is how important love is. You can know theology. You can pass a theology test. You can teach. You can serve people. And if that describes you, but your roommate hates you, because you don't care about the dishes, or you're always making him mad, and, you're con- and, and people are constantly offended by you, then Paul just kind of says, who cares? Like, who cares what you know? Right, and then look what else he says. He says, if I give away all I have, right, ra- that's radical generosity. If you make yourself homeless for the sake of somebody, if, if, if I deliver up my body to be burned. So he's saying, even if you're a martyr, you have incredible commitment so, so, so there's a way you can have moral fortitude that people respect, but you have no love. He says it's of no value. And you're actually like a, a noisy gong or, or, or a loud symbol. Why does, he, why does he call it a noisy gong? Because in the Corinthian context, okay, in the city of Corinth, when you, when you would go worship the pagan gods and you needed to be noticed and you really wanted something, you made lots of loud noise with those things so that, so that God would see you and approve of you and give you what you wanted. And what Paul is saying, listen to this, he's saying there's a way to be incredibly busy in life, busy serving people with moral fortitude to the point of exhaustion, and it actually means nothing because your real motive is that you're just a gong, a symbol, because you want people to notice you. And you actually want God to notice you and start liking you. Um, Charles Spurgeon has a famous illustration. He's an old Baptist preacher uh, in a story that he made up. It goes something like this. He tells this story. I've used this before. He says, once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot, and he decided to give it to his prince because he loved his prince. When he gave it to the prince, uh, the prince discerned his love and devotion and that he expected nothing in return. So, so as the gardener turned to leave, the prince said, Here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so you can produce an even greater crop. It's all yours. And the gardener went home rejoicing. A nobleman heard of this incident and thought, If that's what the prince, if that's what that man, if that's what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot, I wonder what he would give me if I gave him a fine horse. And so the nobleman the next day came and presented the prince with a fine horse as a gift. But the prince discerned his heart and said, You expect me to give you as I did to the gardener. I will not. You are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. You see, he really gave himself a gift. And there is a way that you can have a busy moral heart that gives the appearance of love, but in reality, the function of your heart is just self-interest. It was to get yourself something, esteem or applause or popularity or even to get God like, to God like you. And Paul says that's not love and it means nothing. Because the difference between a, a, a kind of moral and busy heart and one that's been saved by grace 
is that you actually start doing things not out of self-interest, but in the interest of others. This is what Paul is saying, right? He's not saying that your love of God makes God love you impossible. But he says the number one sign that you have actually received the love of God is that you begin to love people and God. And it's about their interest and not yours. Which transitions to the next point? What is the meaning of love? Verse 4 through 7. The Apostle Paul, he, he, he personifies love. He gives you this amazing picture of what love actually is, and he starts describing things that the Corinthians aren't. So what is the real meaning of love? Let's recognize, I, I would suggest that our culture, in our culture, love is primarily a feeling. It's just a feeling, right? And, and, and so it's like this ditch that we fall into, and we say, oh, I, I, I fell in love. I guess I like this person. It's something that happens to you. And so in, in kind of the dating marriage world that we live in, what we mean when we usually say we love somebody is this. It's when someone or something else makes me feel good right now in this particular situation. That's how we define love. If they make me feel good about myself, then it must be love. And I... And, and I'm with you, okay? But I think we have no idea how much we've been affected by our culture and that definition of love. The selfish bent to it, right? When I, I think when we say things like this, well, I'm just not that attracted to her, or it's just not there, or right, he, he's a great guy and he's going to make a great husband for somebody but not me, a lot of times what you're saying is, I just don't have those feelings, Right? So I must not can love him. Or, I, or the spark wasn't there. Or, right? It's so hard to describe this, this weird thing called love that you're supposed to feel. But notice in these verses, right, when Paul starts describing love and he de- describes the different facets of it, he doesn't describe any feelings. Because the Bible never defines love primarily as a feeling. Instead, it's an action. It's actually a decision. It's a decision towards another person. And so Paul personifies love by saying it's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant, it's not, it doesn't insist on its own way, etc., and it endures all things. And the common denominator about the different facets of love that Paul shows you is this, that to love someone means that you place that person's interests over your own. It's kind of that simple. To love someone means to make a decision to put your interest before mine, your needs before mine. That's Paul's definition of love. And so think about a few of these, right? We're not going to go through all of them. it take too long. But think about patience, right? The Greek word actually is long-suffering. A lack of patience always reveals living for self-interest. Always, if you think about it. Right? What happens when you become impatient? We become impatient whenever someone gets in the way of your interest and blocks you from getting that. Whether that interest is something that you need or something you need to accomplish or some kind of timetable that needs to happen or some feeling you need to get, whatever is keeping you from from your interest threatens your patience. And so if your friend has a problem, right, and that problem is emotionally taxing on you, and it doesn't get fixed on your timetable, 
then eventually your patience runs out, right? Because your interest, the things you need to get done, have now been impeded by your friend and her problems until your patience is gone. And so it's really interesting. I think you can always ask yourself, where am I most impatient? Whatever is behind that is probably the self-interest that you're exalting and living for. So then, right, Paul also says, uh, the Apostle Paul says, it does not envy or boast, right? What is envy? It's just jealousy. Whenever you are jealous, by definition, you are seeking your own interest instead instead of that person, right? If what's going to make you happy is getting recognition or getting awards or positions, then when you see your friend get that position, that award or that job, right, on the outside you say, yeah, I'm so happy for you. And on the inside, you're so angry and jealous, right? Your interest is dominating you instead of theirs, and you can't even be happy for them. Right? Boasting is, all, is always being concerned with your own interest, right? We so need approval or we so need to be seen, we so need to be acknowledged that when we do things for other people and they don't notice, we just get angry and it drives us crazy. And so we find ways to, right, to mention what we did, like sometimes we cover them in prayer requests because that looks good, right? But we, we want you to know that we did these things. And, it, and when it drives us crazy that we're not, rec- we're not recognized, by definition, realize it means you weren't loving a person, but you were loving people's applause. It was all about your interest. Right? He says it's not rude and it, it doesn't insist on its own way. Being rude is, is the opposite of love because it's simply being unthoughtful. Because we don't take the, take the time to know what hurts people, and so we're rude. Because it's just about me. And I need it to be about me. And then love never insists on its own way because it, it cares about another person's interest before your own. And, and some of you, some of you have no idea how to listen, right? Because, I'm not talking about listening to me in a sermon, that's fine. But how many conversations get started and you have to dominate them with your view and the story always has to come back to you, or you listen to someone hurting just so you could share your opinion on how to fix them, and what that person needed was for you to just actually listen and remove yourself altogether. But, but we've got to get our own way in there, right? It makes us feel so good, right? Or, or we can connect the, uh, connect the dots with being a symbol or a gong. Like, it could be possible. We talked about this in the, in the case. KD house the other day. It could be possible that your methods of evangelism and discipleship are actually rude. And the real purpose that you're doing in them is to assert yourself and to make yourself feel good and feel like you accomplished something. And you'd rather do that than actually bring that person and do the hard work of bringing that person into a real relationship with you and your friends. Right? It's easier to do the other because you just get to achieve your self-interest. Um, right? It's not irritable. Right? Uh, I've been here. Right? If you're ever in a job and, you're, and your, inter- your sole interest is making money, right? then your boss is going to annoy you at some point. But if your interest is to serve your boss, it's amazing how that changes things. 
And then lastly, right, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In one word, and here's how we'll kind of kind of bring this slowly to a close. Love is commitment. It's commitment. Real love lasts because it's about the interest of another person and not your own. Right? In friendship love, which we talked about kind of at the beginning, it means we don't look... We don't just walk away from people when they stop giving as much of the relationship as we give. Or we we don't just walk away when they don't fit into my schedule anymore. Because it's about them, not me. But in romantic love, right, what we're all interested in, it means this. Love is finally a decision to be passionately committed to a person. Which means, and I, I say this with care, just because you snuck into the stadium with her or you took her out to the refuge and you got those butterflies and everything seemed perfect, right? And, and you had that feeling and you looked at her and you said, I love you. You might have actually been dishonest, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to forbid you from saying that. But I'm asking you to consider what love really is. See, some of you are laughing because that's you. But uh, you all go to the refuge, if, you're, if, you get, if you get taken to the refuge, they want to tell you that they love you. I'm going to tell you that. So. Um, but love says, I'm all, love says I'm all in. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter what happens, right? If you change tomorrow, I'll still be here. Uh, if I change the way I feel about you, I'm still not going anywhere. No matter if your health fails, I'm committed to you. Um, old campus minister John Sonnen said, look, love says this. Let's go to a church, and before God and these witnesses, let's commit to each other and get married until death do us part. Because I choose to sacrifice and lay down my life for you, no matter how we feel in the future. And I forsake all other options, and I choose you. That is love. There's a guy named uh, David Ireland who um, who had been married for quite a while, and he came down with uh, with Lou Gehrig's disease, which is one of the most right. You you just you you lose all use of your limbs and and um, and all just everything. It's an awful disease. And and as uh, as his Lou Gehrig's disease uh, came and it progressed pretty quickly, he found out that his wife was pregnant. And so what he did is he decided to write his unborn child. Uh, some letters that got put into this book. And don't read it unless you want to cry like all night. Um, but he said he wanted to write uh, to his unborn baby so that he would know how great his mom was and how much he loved him, even though he might not get to meet him. Here's what he said uh, it's letters to an unborn child. He said, My child, I want you to know what your mother's like. She's absolutely incredible. I think that I can make it clear to you by just telling you what happens when we go out to eat at night. When we go out to a restaurant, this is what she has to do. Because I'm a quadriplegic now, and in a wheelchair, she has to bathe me, dress me, empty the urine and fecal bags that are strapped to my legs, then put me in the wheelchair, drive me out to the garage, open the garage, open the door, um, sorry, get out of board, pull up the arm of the chair, slide me across the board, put me in the car, put down the arm, fold up the chair, open the trunk, put in the chair, close the trunk, close the door, get in the car, back out, close the garage door, drive to the restaurant. Then when we get to the restaurant, the whole process is reversed. 
Then when we finally sit down at the table, she feeds me, wipes the drool from my mouth because I can barely eat, gets up, pays the check, and then the whole process is reversed. We, we go out to the car, we open the door, take off the arm, get back in, get home, and when we finally uh, empty my urine bag again, bathe me and put me in pajamas, and she lays me down to bed, she looks at me, and her last words to me every night is, thank you, honey, thank you for taking me out tonight. That is love. Right? That I guarantee you that is not what she planned for when she said, I do. And I guarantee you there are days she did not like that. But she was all in. See, we're going to talk about this next week because next week is just what is marriage. But when you take your wedding vows, you never once, once say anything about your present feelings. I, I guess unless you write your own. But what you do is you make vows into the future. And that's the point. You're saying to your spouse, I will still be here. You're saying, regardless of how I feel in two years, I will be here to serve you and love you and lay down my life to you. I will not leave you. I'll never trade you in for another spouse. Right? Even on days when we're not attracted to each other. And there are days in marriage you're not attracted to each other. You're saying, I'm still going to be here. Even when you're the person causing pain to me, I will be here. And I will love you. We can fight, we can disagree, we can forgive, but we will never leave each other. That's what love is. And hear me, I, this is why dating, and I'm pro-dating, I'm so pro-dating, but this is why dating is not real love. And I'm not belittling it. And I'm not saying that you can't say I love you, but recognize that dating is simply two friends trying each other own romantically to see if you want to make a commitment to love each other. That's all dating is. It's great, but that's what it is. And your feelings might fade away. And if you want, you can quit dating the person because your feelings changed. And you're not sinning. And you're free to do that. But real love endures through richer and poorer, through sickness and health, till death do us part. So it's an unshakable love. Absolutely unshakable. Why is real love always unshakable? Because it's not based on anything about that person at all. all right, it's not based on their... <laughs> that was awesome. It's, uh, <laughs> I will not identify you, Margaret. Um, Right? The, reason, the reason that real love is unshakable because it's actually not dependent on that person. Right? It's not ba- real love is not based on how you look. It's not based on how you're treating me. It's not based on my feelings towards you. It's not based on any kind of merit. Edmund Clowney, an old theologian, he, he kind of used to laugh. He'd say, look, if your wife comes to you and says, why do you love, love me? He says, what you do not want to say is, well, I love you because you're serviceable. I, loved it other, I looked at other women and decided you'll give me the greatest sense of well-being. And I added all these things up and I realized you would, you'd be the most compatible and, and you'd help me reach all my goals. And I ran it through the computer and, well, honey, you were it. See, or if you say, I love you because you're beautiful or I love you because you're funny, then you're going to be terrified as you start losing that or when you're not funny. And he says, when somebody says, why do you love me? You want somebody to say, I love you because I love you. And it's never going to stop. 
So the reason for my love for you is bound up in our commitment. It's unshakable. And before you say that's so unromantic, it's actually freeing if you'll think about it. Because it frees you to love each other and serve each other even when the feelings aren't there. You can actually fall in and out of like with each other. You just can't fall out of love with each other. Because love is a commitment. But see, we keep thinking that feelings are the source of my actions. Right? We're all about being authentic. So I can only do something if I feel like it. And the Bible says baloney. Feelings follow actions. You do what's right and your feelings follow. Um, C.S. Lewis, in one of his radio talks that became uh, Mere Christianity, he argues that despite feelings of indifference and even contempt... Your heart can actually change over the long haul because of your actions. Listen to what he says. He says, don't waste time bothering whether you actually love your neighbor. He said, just act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you presently will actually come to love him. The Christian trying to treat everyone kindly finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not have imagined himself liking at the beginning. Isn't that beautiful? It's as if, if real love is action. Do the actions of love and the feelings will follow. What does that mean for your relationships? It means for your relationships, and specifically marriage, there will be times that you don't feel tender, and you don't feel sympathetic, and you don't feel eager to please. But if you will go be, go be tender, and go be eager to please, and go be forgiven, forgiving, a lot of times the dry spells will actually go away quicker and quicker. Because the feelings of love will follow the actions of love. So that is love. Place, setting aside your interest for the interest of the other person and being compassionately uh, committed to that. So how do we do that? Right? What's the key? Um, the key to putting other people's interests before you, in some ways it's incredibly simple. It really is. But it's amazingly difficult. Did you notice, right? Paul personifies love. It's like he makes love a person, doing all these things. And Paul is wanting you. He's begging you to think of a person. He's begging you to imagine a person. Right? If you take this as just a list to go home and work on, you are either going to end in arrogant pride because you actually start achieving this, or you're going to end in despair because you can't do this. Either way, you're self-absorbed. Either way, you're still about your own interest. Paul is saying, you must meet and receive love itself. Love himself. You must receive and let the love of Jesus change you. He is who this is describing. And most of us are so obsessed, if you're like me, with getting our needs met, getting people's attention, getting the applause of others, trying to be noticed, because there's so much emptiness inside. And Paul is lifting the chin saying, look, there is a well that will never run out. And it's called the love of Jesus. Right? Do you remember that conversation? It's okay if you, if you never read it. But in John 4, where Jesus comes upon this woman at the well. And they're talking about this living water. And she says, give me that living water. I, you know, I don't ever want to come to the well again. And Jesus says, well, go bring your husband. And she says, well, I don't. I don't have a husband. He says, that's right. You've had six husbands, and the man that you're living with is not your husband. And you, you say, what is Jesus doing? What Jesus was telling her is, look, what you've been looking for in the arms of a man, you will find in me. 
I'm the living water. Look at it. How patient is God's love? If you'll receive it, because it's by sheer grace, because he places his righteousness on you, he actually never wearies of loving you. He never gets tired of you. He never gets tired of the fact that your feelings for him wax and wane. The reason you are his, if you are, is because he didn't insist on his own way. He didn't. You realize there really was a prayer that Jesus did not get answered. He goes into the garden of Gethsemane, and he's preparing to go to the cross to take hell itself, to take our sins. And he prays to the Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. He doesn't want to go to the cross. He's insisting on his own way, kind of. But when God says no, he submits. And he goes to the cross. His interest would have been to avoid the cross, but he puts your interest and my interest ahead, and he goes to the cross. Right? And then, and then, in the greatest act in all of history, for three hours, he hangs on a cross naked, and he takes hell. Like, he takes hell for all the sins of his people in three hours. And what holds him there are not nails. What holds him there is his love for you. That's the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. And he says, see it. See it and receive it. It's better than you think. It endures all. It never ends. And that love will change you. Because you realize it's unmerited. It's a love that's set on you. Why does God love you? If you think it's because you're good, then when you have those weeks, you'll wonder if he still loves you. Right? If you think it's because you're beautiful, you'll wonder what's happening. If you think it's because of how well you love him, then when your love starts waxing, you'll think he's quit loving you. But he loves you because he loves you. The reasons for his love is bound up in himself, and you can't shake it. And that creates a reservoir that fills the emptiness of the soul. So, so that a friend, a friend really can mess with your schedule, and that's hard. And you don't get as much accomplished that day, and you say, okay, I can continue to love because I don't have to accomplish all those things to be okay. Jesus accomplished salvation for me. He really loves me. That's the only way that real love starts getting developed. You have to receive it. So let me just end with a few and hope really quickly practical examinations of what loving in college might look at. It says, no, thus saith the Lord, okay. But if love is being committed to putting someone else's interest before your own, then that should change the way that you actually break up with each other, Okay. In our context, right, the normal reaction to a breakup is the knee-jerk reaction of, no, 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 you don't know how much I love you. You can't break up with me. I will love you better than anybody else will. And in order to keep her from what she is free from doing, which is going to pursue her own interest or, or, or date somebody else or do whatever she wants, you start marketing yourself to win her back, calling her, Letting her know how desperate you are through text messages about how miserable you are without her. You tell me, whose interest are you really emphasizing? It's not working because it's not loving. When you get broken up with, it is hard and it hurts. 
But if you actually love her, then you can put her interests first and say, it hurts to hear that you want to break up. And that makes me sad because I still want to date you. But if your interests are to go elsewhere, to be out, then of course, of course. Because love means you're actually for them, not your own interests. And so you resist manipulation. And if you're doing the breakup, do it in the interest of the other person, right? Care about their interest when you break up with them. Don't act cold and distant until they figure out that you want to break up so that they have to do it, right? That's what we want to do. We think that's nice. It's not. Don't unload all your anger and baggage on them. Don't go tear them down in front of your friends. Make efforts to protect them and their reputation and by making it clear that things are over. And then make it clear that things are over the next day and the next week and the next week. Because you're pursuing his interest and it's really over. Right? It, I, hopefully it'll change the way you ask somebody out. Right? If you're concerned about your own interest, when you're going to ask somebody out, then what you're going to do is self-protect. And what that means is you're going to try to avoid all risk and avoid all possible pain and all possible uh, rejection. So you'll get assurance from like 10 different people, right? I mean, she, do you think she's really into me? Like, I don't know, what do you think? And, and, you, and, and you'll hang out with her for months in groups, right? But you'll always kind of pull her aside to kind of hang out together to see if y'all kind of click. All the while trying to get the risk of rejection down to zero. Zero. Which means you've put all the risk on her. You actually haven't cared about her interest. Just pick up the phone and say, I would love to get to know you better. I want to ask you out on a date and consider her privilege if she wants to go. And she can say no. I don't, I'm not, I don't think that's old-fashioned. I think that's normal and caring about the other person's interest. Third, when it comes to conflict, whether in dating or roommates or friendships, right? whenever somebody hurts you or something irritates you, the initial reaction Mine is always to put my interests first and to protect myself by writing that person off or to inflict pain to that person by like snide remarks, right, about how dirty the kitchen is or this isn't about our marriage anymore. This is something else. Or like, you know, why don't, I don't like we get sarcastic or something like that um, because you do, we just seek our own interest. But if Jesus loved you as his enemy and made you his friend, that's supposed to make us enable to move towards a person, even amidst conflict. What will that look like? I mean, I, I don't know. Some of you, it means that you actually confront a person. Some of you have never confronted a person, not because you love the person, but because you love so much what they think about you that you don't ever want to transgress that. It's another form of self-love. But also it might mean actually forgiving and not bringing it up or discussing it. It means praying for the person and praying against your selfishness. I don't know. But it means you absorbing it rather than the other person paying for it. And lastly, and here's how I'll kind of end. It means quit seeing, seeing dating as mini-marriage, right, what we already talked about. And realize, though, that your dating relationship is preparation for marriage. Now, you can take that too far, but embrace the freedom. And you, you don't have to panic when you fall out of like with the person that you're dating. Like, that's actually normal. Feelings are incredibly fickle. They're incredibly fickle. 
and quit equating them with love. You, you can quit dating them just because your feelings change. There's nothing binding you to that. But it might just be that your expectations and the weight that you're putting on these fickle things called feelings is way too much. It might be if you quit analyzing your feelings and go back to serving that person and enjoying that person, the feelings might actually come back. And that also means, will be my last appeal, girls, you can broaden your range of guys that you're willing to go out with. Who cares if you don't have feelings for him? Like, they might actually come if you get to know him on a date. You can go out with him. You're not marrying him. And so all that to say, 1 Corinthians shows that love is simply passionately committing to put somebody else's interest before your own. And 1 John, right, what Molly said, tells us that we love because he first loved us. Think about that. What kind of God would actually put our interests before his? Ours. That's an amazing love that will make you sing what we're about to sing, It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, for, um, thank you for loving us. And I hope we feel the weight of what that means a little bit more. That your love is unshakable. Lord, we thank you uh, that you have set it on us before the foundations of this world. Lord, that you don't love us because we're good and you don't love us because we got it together and you don't even love us because we're trying harder this week, but you love us because Jesus was righteous for us. And Jesus died 2,000 years ago in our place. So, Lord, I pray that that would free us up to lay down our lives for others. And free us up to come to you with everything. And ask forgiveness and receive forgiveness and delight in your love. In your son's name I pray. Amen.